Maybe you felt chills or goosebumps. Perhaps it's an overwhelmed feeling of something bigger than you or more complex. Whatever the feeling, God put the response in your soul as a reminder of His presence, power, and glory. It's called awe, and He wants to remind us of it every day in many ways. Join us as we discover how God has used His awe to inspire others to follow Him deeper in their lives. So on February 12th, Rabbit Room Press will release the second volume of Every Moment Holy Series, Death, Grief, and Hope. These prayers and liturgies are reminders that our lives are filled with sacred purpose and eternal hopes, even when suffering pain and grief, when those may seem overwhelming. Today we have author Douglas McKelvey on the podcast with us, and the book couldn't be more timely. You know, we think that all that we've been through in the nation recently, and this book has a hundred liturgies and prayers to touch on things such as, you know, what to do in the wake of national tragedy, praying and thinking about long-term caregivers, praise for this day of life or the loss of a friend or a close sibling, forgiving of unintended words or mourning with those who mourn. Douglas shares this following statement, which I think is so pertinent and helps us understand what this is about. These prayers and liturgies are offered in light of eternal hope, encouraging us to give ourselves more fully to the experience of our present sorrows in light of those unshakable joys to come, to better learn what it means to nurture, serve, encourage, and carry one another, and ultimately to reclaim a greater sense that these journeys of dying, caretaking, and grieving are holy moments to be experienced in communion with God and in fellowship with one another, just as any other facet of our discipleship. Doug, welcome to In Awe by Bruce. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Bruce. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, Doug, what what inspired you to go along this path? What are you hoping that out of that inspiration this brings to other people? When I first moved to Nashville in the early 90s, one of my mentors was artist and producer and author Charlie Peacock. And at the time, he was exploring this theological truth of Coram Deo, of all of life being lived under the gaze of God, and of there being no separation between um, the parts of our lives we might consider as secular and the parts we might consider as religious. But, you know, this dawning understanding that every square inch of creation and every moment of every day and every facet of our lives are lived out under the gaze of God and in his presence, and that the way I treat my friend is as much a part of my worship of God as when I sing a song of praise um, in a corporate setting in a church, and that the way I go about uh, my work of, of writing or painting a house, which I had to do yesterday, Mm -hmm. um, that all of these activities find their context in a life of worship and all aspects of it being offered to God and, and recognizing his presence. So I think when I set out to write every holy volume one, 
I was very much wanting to be able to pass those ideas on to other people and that perspective that had been so helpful to me, so foundational and shaping 30 years ago um, in my walk with Christ and in the building of a, a worldview and a, a theology that that meshed with, with Scripture, um, just a much more holistic understanding of what it meant to be um, a child of God and a follower of Christ living in this space between the paradise of Eden that was lost and, you know, the, the glorious fulfillment of Christ's return and the new creation and what it means to, to live moment by moment, day by day in this space in between those two, in the tension between great and wonderful experiences and glimpses of, of that glory. And there's also tremendous struggle and pain and heartache that all of us endure. Mm. So in the, the, the project overall of Every Moment Holy, it, it's very much about that mm. and about um, trying to give people tools that can help them to frame that understanding and to explore these ideas of, okay, these are the truths we believe, but how does that in actually intersect a moment like when I have to change a child's diaper? Mm -hmm. If what we say is actually true, then somehow that act of serving an infant by changing their diaper does intersect with the kingdom of heaven and with the new creation to come. Yes. Um, so it, it, was, it was also an attempt on my part to carefully consider some of those parts of everyday life and to try to unpack them in light of scriptural truth and what we believe and to see how does this fit with the with the new creation and with the pursuit of Christ. So what what I'm here in your voice and and tell me if I'm wrong which I makes this feel so empathetic from your your part and understandable is I I feel like you have this understanding but you've maybe struggled with pulling it all together in the different parts of your life. So you've parsed it out to try and figure out how does it all connect? I don't think I'm unique in this way. I think that it's an ongoing struggle mm -hmm. for most of us. I had a pastor for many years who would frequently talk about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. <laughs> and I think that's necessary because we so easily forget it. We so easily lose perspective. We lose that eternal perspective. And it is a struggle to continually reorient ourselves to the story that God is telling and to the hope that is held out to us in the, in the gospel. So it was a necessary exercise and still is for me as much as for anyone who might find benefit mm. in the prayers that I've written in these books. I think, because there aren't many days that I don't realize I'm 
kind of just wanting to go my own way and live my life the way I want it, <laughs> bowing my knees and embracing the better dreams and the better vision and the better hopes that that are held out to me in the gospel. And the reason I, I brought that up is because that's, I think, what is important for people to hear is that these aren't platitudes. This is, this is a person who is struggling with these things, even while writing them, but is pulling together what they can see in the Bible and their own experience, how it works. So let me ask you some other questions along these lines that I think I'd be asking if I was listening, which is, and, and I'm asking myself, which is, okay, so Doug, you know, there's a lot of times I just, just want to block God out, and I do. <laughs> so where, where do I go from there? Some of the the more difficult prayers that I wrote in volume one were ones that, that addressed subjects like um, a liturgy for nights and days of doubt. And... Um, a liturgy for those who have not done great things for God, and a liturgy for those fearing failure. You know, to write those prayers required me to kind of peel back all those onion layers of my own fears and insecurities and struggles. Mm -hmm. What I found, though, with in, in writing a prayer like the one for Nights and Days of Doubt— yeah, is that even that process of struggling with doubt is something that we can do in the presence of God, that God is not threatened by our questions or our moments of doubt. Mm -hmm. his, his truths are unshakable. His nature is unchanging. His love for us is unwavering. And so if you imagine an image like of a child who is throwing a fit, having kind of a freak out moment, and a loving parent embracing them. Actually, I think this image has probably been in my head for many years because my yeah. wife worked as a social worker and worked with kids who were in foster care and in group homes, kids who had been put in some sort of institution. And these tended to be children who had suffered abuse and mm -hmm. who, who had a lot of wounds and, and emotional scars and that they were trying to, to help them work through. Uh, but when a kid just went completely out of control, those caregivers working with them were trained to hold the child firmly. Mm-hmm in a way where the child couldn't hurt themselves or someone else, but in that embrace, the child could still give vent to their emotions and let out what was going on inside them, and yet at the same time have this sense of being held and protected, even from the violence or the fear that would be induced by the power of their own emotions. Mm -hmm. And God is strong enough and loving enough that when we have our inevitable freak out moments and aren't sure what we believe or angry at the way things in some circumstance in our lives and it's God that we're at least partially angry at because he didn't change the circumstance or, or make it different, 
that part of the process of following Christ and moving further along in this journey is, is coming to realize that just as the psalmists expressed pretty much every emotion you could express, I mean, they were sometimes angry at mm -hmm. God, afraid, disappointed, but it was always in conversation with God rather than shutting down, rather than saying, well, I feel these negative emotions, so mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't express them. They're recognizing, no, this is this is a relationship with a heavenly father, and he loves me, and I can go to him with my disappointment, and I can tell him, I'm upset because you didn't move in the way I wanted you to move. You didn't you didn't protect me from this thing. You didn't and yet it's so different, you know. I mean, we see this in the life of David, that the expression of those things was always in relationship to God and always ultimately bringing him back to this remembrance that, okay, things do seem bad now, but you have been utterly faithful in the past. And so I'm going to rest my heart in this place like a, you know, like a weaned child mm -hmm. in its mother's arms. I'm going to I'm going to rest in you even in this. And so we begin to realize that even these these struggles, these disappointments, these doubts, or maybe especially the struggles, disappointments and doubts that we face are part of this divine invitation to press into the merciful and loving heart of God who embraces us and doesn't always just wrap everything up immediately with a nice bow for us, but offers us himself and the opportunity to learn that the questions we had might not have even been the right questions, that what we really longed for and wanted was God's presence, was to know that he is with us and we are with him. And that in that place, so many of the questions fall away. So many mm. of the doubts are answered, not by receiving a specific answer, but just by the presence of God. Mm -hmm. That's a great way, I think, for me, I know, to look at it is that Ultimately, what I'm really trying to look at is and get to is just knowing that he's there. He wants to listen. He wants to hold me and comfort me or speak words of empathy and wisdom and whatever it might be to me in those situations. Yeah. Take that over now into your, into your new book. Here I am going through whatever pain, going through whatever suffering. Apply that to now me looking to God for answers when I think, you know, why did this person have to die too young or or I can't believe a child was taken out because of this or, you know, whatever the situation might be. The volume two of Every Moment Holy that's focused on seasons of dying and grieving and also on the, the hope that we have even in the midst of those, that book actually came about because when volume one was published, I recognized that the biggest topic that I had not addressed mm -hmm. was a prayer or a liturgy for those in that immediate aftermath of losing someone, was that I hadn't written a prayer for those 
in that immediate experience of grieving the loss of a family member or a, a close friend, it had been an emotionally weighty process for about a year as I was as I was writing that first book. And I think as I got toward the end of the process and close to the publication deadline, I just didn't feel like I had the emotional bandwidth to approach that topic. Um, mm. But I knew that that at some point I needed to. So some months after after the first book came out, actually, it was probably a year after it came out. I turned my attention to that and thought, okay, I'll go ahead and try to write this prayer. And, you know, if there's ever a volume two, it can go in that. But in the meantime, we can make it a free download on the Every Moment Holy website. And, you know, so it'll be there available for people who might find encouragement or, or benefit in those seasons of grief. So I started working on that prayer. And before I knew it, it was 10 pages long, which is far too long for, for this sort of thing. And I realized, oh, there, there's more than one topic here, really. I need, to, I need to separate this out into a few different prayers. And then that continued to happen. Before long, I, I might have had 20 prayers, and I went to the publisher and I said, I think this topic needs to be its own book. Because there are so many facets to grieving, the different ways that, that grief impacts different people. And, and then I realized that there's the whole dying side of it, too. What about prayers for someone who gets that you know, diagnosis or prognosis mm -hmm. that they have six months to live and has to, to work through that? Yeah. So uh, Rabbit Room Press said, yeah, do that. So... <laughs> so for two years, I worked on this book as as my main project, and it ended up being longer than than volume one of Every Moment Holy. But along the way, I, I realized how inadequate, I mean, from the beginning, it was part of why I was afraid to write it, because there was the sense of who am I yeah. who, who I haven't lost a child, who am I to try to articulate the heart of someone who has suffered that tragedy, um, who is walking through that kind of, you know, emotional storm and experiencing that level of loss. Hmm. There were several of the topics that I knew needed to be approached in the book that I was just inadequate for. You know, what about for someone who loses a family member to suicide? Yeah, you know that comes with its own set of of emotions that have to be dealt with often on an ongoing basis for the rest of their life. Hmm. So I recognized early on that I couldn't do this alone. That I really needed voices from the community around me, hmm. and so I spent I spent a year in conversation with a number of people who had had recent losses, um, who had lost children, who had lost spouses. I conversed with people who were dying. As word about this project started to filter out a little bit, I had people that I didn't know contact me and say things like, can you go ahead and send me 
some of these prayers, even if they're not finished, because I'm not expected to still be alive by the time your book is published. Oh, boy. Um, it was so necessary mm. to be in conversation with people like that. And um, there was a woman, Amy, who we had mutual acquaintance who put us in touch with each other um, because Amy had just lost her husband and two daughters. And so for a year, Amy and I corresponded, and I would send her drafts of some of these prayers, like for the loss of a child. Uh-huh. And she would, you know, she she was so gracious to open that window to the process of her own grief journey and to give me honest feedback on mm. what was connecting, what was expressing her heart and where I was missing it or yeah. what things that I just wouldn't have thought of. And she would also suggest ideas like at a certain point she told me. I know I'm going to want to remove my wedding ring soon. Hmm. Um, you know, I think I'm going to be ready to do that, but I would like to mark that moment with a liturgy, with a, a prayer, you know. That, wow. So that's great. So there are, there are prayers in the book that are there because Amy and other people told me this is what I need hmm. right now. Um, so, it was the only way that I could write some of these prayers in a way where they might be meaningful and encouraging to and actually articulate what's on the heart of someone who is going through you know, some of these hardest passages of, of suffering and grief that, that as human beings and as, as followers of Christ that we have mm. to go through. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your your question. I think I was I was trying to fill in some background and I might I might have lost track of what your question was. No, I think you filled in by the examples pretty okay. much. Somebody who's who's out there trying to rekindle things in the midst of the pain they're going through and and those personal examples. And I, I just wanted to add something I didn't say in the beginning is that as you're hearing Doug talk about getting prayers from other people that are going through these situations, how how good it is. He also uh, is a writer beyond just books. He he's written songs for people like Kenny Rogers and and other people in Nashville. Uh, so and a script writer. So he words are really his thing. So I think that's one thing. It'll be a big plus. And that was going to kind of lead me into my next question, Doug, which is. You know, somebody picks up this book, what are they looking at? How the prayers you were saying, the, the one was 10 pages, obviously too long. What what are the prayers like? How long are they? You know, how, how long is your book? That kind of thing. Probably the shortest one in the book is just a couple lines, and they, they range from that to, mm -hmm. I don't know what the longest is. It might be six or seven pages. I mean, I grew up as someone who was very sensitive to to words, to mm -hmm. um, to the rhythm and the feel of words and the beauty of words and lines that are well-crafted and that the, the cadence um, you know, of them is pleasing. The years I spent as a lyricist mm -hmm. um, were years that prepared me to do the type of writing um, that I was trying to do with Every Moment Holy mm. because I want the prayers to... I want them to be 
theologically rich, deeply meaningful. I want them to um, to be true, to connect with people on an emotional level. But I also want them to be beautiful. I can't really separate those things, and I, mm. I want it to be true and beautiful. Um, and I think that's what when I was in college and first encountered uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh -huh. um, it was a foreign thing to me, but but I immediately gravitated toward this expression of prayers that had been honed over long periods of time by many people and that had a beauty to them as well as the richness of theological depth. And it's something that I'm not capable of achieving in spontaneous prayer. Writing is where I do my thinking. It's where I do most of my wrestling through things that I believe and that I'm considering. And so with spending the years that I did writing lyrics, um, you have to you have to say as much as you can in as small a space as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to do so in, you know, with a certain cadence and with a consideration of the mellifluousness of the, of, of the way the words, you know, will flow from, from the singer's mouth. Some things look good on paper, but when it's, um, spoken or sung, it just doesn't flow very mm -hmm. well. There's a wide range of lengths of the prayers. Some of them are a couple lines. Some of them are maybe seven or eight pages. So that leads me to really my, my last question I had for you was, and, and this kind of expands on a little bit of what you just said. I might be looking at this going, well, you know, I, I'm not really facing any deaths or anything that are, you know, cause me grief or anything. Why would somebody who's not necessarily in a situation like that right now read what you've written in this book? That's a good question. And I think the answer I would give to that is not something that I was really aware of when I first started writing these prayers for volume two, um, but something that I, that I began to realize along the way as I, as I read books written by people chronicling their own grief journey, having lost a child or, um, you know, facing their own terminal prognosis and, and sifting, wrestling through everything that comes with that. And, and as a result of the conversations that I had with people who were walking through those things. Oh. And, and that is that the church at least in the West, I can't speak to some of the other parts of the world, we have lost what was once, I think, a much richer and more helpful and truer theology of dying. And I think hmm. part of that is because as medicine has advanced yeah. um, in the ways that it has, that we no longer have this emphasis on dying well, hmm. on the kind of death where we know that we're dying and we make amends with people, with our creator. We, we make it a point to say the things that we want to make sure those who love us know, you know, whatever we want to pass on to them. We, we savor those last months or weeks 
or days or hours um, that we're able to still interact with those that we love and who love us and whose lives have been twined with our own. We've lost the sense of family and community caring for those who are dying and that privilege as difficult as as it sometimes is, but yeah. that privilege of ushering someone across that threshold into eternity. <laughs> We've also lost as a result of that, I think much of our sense of how while death is clearly an enemy and it will be destroyed by the victorious Christ. And scripture tells us, you know, the, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, but it will mm. be destroyed. And, you know, we should never succumb to the idea that death is just part of the circle of life and it's somehow beautiful. And no, it's an enemy. It's, mm. it's, it's an alien thing. And yet for the believer, for the one who would follow Jesus, when we are baptized into his death, and then when we practice, we rehearse taking up our cross daily, dying to our own desires, our own ambitions, mm. to our own gain, and embracing his life instead. This is all moving toward the inevitable moment when, as a step in our following of Jesus, we will, at last in our physical death, finally and forever lay down all of those things, <laughs> anything other than Christ that we have tried to cling to or wrestled with being drawn toward or tempted by. And I think we've, we've largely lost that sense that people in earlier times in the church had because <laughs> from, from what I've read over the last couple of years, because death was so common, and because most people didn't die in hospitals, didn't die amidst last-ditch efforts to get another week out of life or whatever, but rather recognized, okay, I'm dying. This is inevitable. It's time to to prepare to die well. Mm. That we've we've become so insulated from it now because someone reaches a certain point, they tend to be put in a way in a hospital or somewhere else where they're no longer part of our community the way people used to die at home. Oh, so, right. And people used to die a lot younger on average. And, you know, I mean, we've all heard the statistics of how many children would tend to die that, you know, a family might have had 10 children, but only three of them made it to adulthood in earlier times, even in America or whatever. So, but it would have been the common experience that when you're six years old, your grandparent is dying in the room next to you, and you are still seeing them, you're still interacting with them, and you're hearing and seeing the process of what it means to be mortal and, and right. to reach the end of your life. And we've put up these barriers as a culture, but the church hasn't done a great job in general of preparing people for that. And, um, you know, back in that day, it was, you didn't just hear about the inevitability of death at a funeral service. It was a common theme in week to week kind of sermons and, and teaching within the church, because it's easy in a culture as comfortable and as comfort-seeking as ours, and with as much diversion and entertainment, which, you know, those aren't 
I'm, I'm not saying that those are all bad things in and of themselves, but they can certainly get out of place and take the place of eternal considerations. Sure. Um, you know, they can, they can be a diversion and an easy escape from some of those things. And, and our mortality is not something we can escape, nor is it something we're supposed to as followers of Christ. I mean, we have the hope of eternal life. You know, that hope is secure. We can lose our lives, but gain life eternal. So I think it's probably a good time for the church to begin to rethink its views on dying and on caring for those who are dying and mm -hmm. and on how we approach our own death or the, the knowledge, the inevitable knowledge of our own death, because that then will should be shaping how we live our lives today and what we invest in, how we love our neighbors and how we, it comes back to that idea of every moment holy and of every right. part of life being lived under the gaze of God, that, mm. um, that it's, it's that struggle to reorient ourselves moment by moment, day by day, um, you know, to kind of turn the opposite direction of this pull and tug of the tide of, of comfort and, and material things and vain ambitions and likes on Facebook and, <laughs> and all these things that we can so easily just seek when, when these things aren't going to matter ultimately. Yeah. And, and there are rich and deep and meaningful things that are flowing from the heart of God and from the life of Christ and mm -hmm. um, from the, the presence of his spirit at, at work in this world in and through us and around us and sometimes despite us. Well, Doug, thank you for one, taking the time with us today and answering all the questions and, and kind of going over different things from the books, but more particularly, thank you for taking the time and effort to lay all this down and give people something that they can, uh, a resource that they can really turn to that, that is empathetic, understanding, and, and can help in these times. And, and as you said, quorum Deo, getting back to understanding, you know, we're under God's gaze all the time. So let's, let's enjoin with him in those situations and, and really live the life out before him, whether we're going through things like the psalmist did, or whether we're rejoicing for different things, but but really appreciate you uh, you know give us your time and sharing all this with us, and uh, you know we'll we'll put up a website and everything uh, when we post the podcast. I appreciate it, Bruce. I've enjoyed talking to you. You too. And um, if you just hang on just a second, we'll go ahead and uh, close out in awe by Bruce and again Douglas McKelvey. Just thank you for listening.